also wanted just to draw your attention. We've, 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 been, we've been looking at this artwork for our Roman series, uh, Look What God Has Done, Foundations for Faith, Then and Now. And I want just to pause, and perhaps you've been looking at that artwork, you've been thinking about that, and perhaps you already noticed there's a blending of the then and now. There's the first century to this century scene blended together there. And I'm convinced, the more I, I learn about the first century, and the, the more I watch the news, perhaps too much today, uh, there's a lot of similarities. I think we are rushing back to the first century. And that means there's going to be some difficulties associated with that. I do hope we keep the running water, the plumbing in-houses thing. I hope that stays. But uh, there's a lot of similarities, and that means there's going to be some difficulties for us in following Christ. We're going to have to make choices along the way of things we'll go along with and things that we can't participate in. We're going to feel isolated at times. But at the same time, there was an opportunity for the church and followers of Jesus to be uniquely following him in the first century that turned the world upside down. And I'm excited about that. Um, it seems like the first century would have been an exciting time to live in faith in Christ, and so this century will be an exciting time to live in faith in Christ. Uh, did you notice also on some of the then and now things that are, that are on that image, did you notice the little walk sign? Did that catch your attention? It's not a stop sign. It's not a wait sign. It's a walk sign. Now is the time to go forward. Uh, we're, we're going to, just after Easter Sunday next week, just after that, when we pick up our Roman series again, in Romans chapter 12, we're going to be stepping into uh, specific ways in which we walk in this new life by God's mercies. So just a little bit on the... On the um, Notes in the bulletin, and there's, there's, the, there's a back page, and there's notes there. Uh, you'll want those this morning. Again, there's an outline for Romans 11 that I think will be helpful to you. And I brought with me this morning as well this, this blanket. Uh, almost 20 years ago now, when I graduated seminary, we were heading back to Africa. But before we did, we went on a, on a trip with Julie's folks, and uh, I bought this as a sort of a graduation souvenir. And we still have it. And isn't it lovely? You can tell where we went then by the picture that's on the, on the blanket, right? Oh, you can't tell. Sometimes, sometimes something is, is, is well made according to plan, and yet it's unclear when you're looking at the unfinished side. If we turned it over, you would have no trouble recognizing where it was we went on that trip, Right? Uh, a week up in the San Juans and spending time at Friday Harbor. But when you're looking at something from the unfinished side, it's just not as clear. I really wanted to bring one of those old tapestries, you know, where the backside is just a mess of strings and chaos, and yet the front is beautiful. Because that illustrates, that illustrates something about life. There's a lot that's going on around us that we're looking at it from the unfinished side, and it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. We can't tell what's going on here from looking at things from the unfinished side. I'm going to lay this over here so that Pastor Evan can't find his music later. As we approach Romans chapter 11 this morning, that's, that's, that's really what, what is being addressed in this chapter. That today is Palm Sunday, 
And Romans 11 is a Palm Sunday-ish kind of chapter. I know you probably thought we were going to be in one of the Gospels, but, but Palm Sunday resonates with chapter 11 of, of the book of Romans. And Palm Sunday really was kind of a disappointment, wasn't it? Over-hype and under-delivered, Right? I mean, think about it. Think what 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 happened then? The 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 Messiah, Jesus the Christ, has come to the Mount of Olives, and now he's 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 riding on a donkey's colt, even as the prophet said, Behold, your king comes to you. And he approaches Jerusalem and he enters Jerusalem, and when he does, it's Palm Sunday because they were taking palm fronds off of the trees and they were laying them down in the roadway. To make a carpet. They didn't have enough palm fronds. They were taking off their outer cloaks or tunics and laying those in the road as a carpet that the king would ride in on because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. This is the Christ, the Messiah, and today's the day and he has come and now the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. Except it was not. Well, sure, there were some temples tossed, or, or there were some tables tossed in the temple, right? There were some money changers that were chased away, but the corrupt political and religious, religious leaders remained. And at the end of the day, it's Jesus the Messiah who again withdraws from Jerusalem, from the city, and God's kingdom has not come. We hoped, imagine you're in that day, we hoped that he would be the one to deliver Israel from Rome and our own leaders. God has not done what we expected. Now that was then, but what about you? Are there times when you have hoped and prayed, but God has not done what you expected that he would do? that it seemed he should do. Maybe it's, maybe it's in marriage. Maybe marriage has not been what you hoped that it would be, or maybe it has not worked out at all as it was supposed to. Maybe it's at work. Maybe you believed once long ago when it was said, we're going to shut down for 15 days to flatten the curve. And along the way, your job has disappeared, and you don't know if it's coming back. Or there's other troubles, tensions, conflicts at work, and you don't know how this can work. Maybe there's an obvious injustice. The way that the way the circumstances unfolded for you and the way that the, the bureaucracy of government works, this is just not right, and yet there's nobody to stand up for you. There's nobody to make any of this change. Maybe you've been slandered. Your, your, your character drugged through the mud. Things are being said about you that are just not true. And there's no one who will vindicate your name, your character. Nobody who will stand up for you. God, why are you letting all this happen? Maybe, maybe it's your children. Maybe you have hoped and prayed, and yet God is not answering in one particular thing that's going on right now, or just in the overall trajectory of where they seem to be going. For all the various reasons that people would ask, 
If God is God and God is good, then why does something like this happen for all of those? It's easier for us to think of times when God is not doing what you expected. Today in Romans chapter 11, I want us to talk about that question. Does God do what we would expect him to do? I want us to understand what is a difficult chapter. We're not going to dip into all the details of it because I want us to get the main point of it, of that God will do more than we expected. Because God does not always do what we expect him to do. But God will, God will always do what he has promised to do. And often, when doing what God has promised to do, God will do even more than we would expect that he would do. In fact, Romans 11 is one of those chapters where, where I'm convinced that God is going to do more than many good theologians expect that God is going to do. God is going to follow through promises that he has made along the way, even promises from long ago, that God is going to follow through and complete those and an assurance of what God is going to do concerning those things on a worldwide scale matters because it impacts what I believe that God will do in a much smaller scale, the things in my own life that I could easily be convinced or confused to believe that These things in my life must not really matter. But God is going to do all that he's promised. And in doing so, God is going to do more than we expect. Sometimes we think our our chance has passed. But God would say, not so fast. Sometimes it would seem that it's probably by now too late. But those are times, as we'll see in this chapter, when it seems like it's too late, those are times when God will say, just you wait. Because God will do more than we would expect him to do. I want to start with an overview, and that overview is in in the back of the bulletin. An overview of Romans 11, and we're not going to cover all the details of this, explain every line of it. You could go back and read the chapter again with that, with that overview next to it, and I think that would help it make more sense to you. Let me summarize it this way. God is fulfilling his promises, even if most of Israel is not yet believing. That's the big picture of 9 to 11. Wait a minute. You said nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord in Romans chapter 8. And yet God made promises like that to Israel. And if God will not complete those promises to a whole nation of people, what makes you think he's going to keep his promise to you individually? If God changed his mind there, if God runs out of patience with all of them, might he not also run out of patience with me? But God is fulfilling his promises. Even if most of Israel is not yet believing, because Israel's stumbling is resulting in, first of all, others being saved among the nations, which will lead to more in Israel also being saved until ultimately a whole generation of Israel will believe in their Messiah. I gave you some extra references there that we won't necessarily turn to this morning, but you can look at them yourself. 
with all of this that God will do, with the nation as a whole will be born in a day, a people will be brought forth together at once. Praise be to God. He's done all of what he said before, and yet he has included all of us and from around the world in it as well. In ways that Israel, whose promises are fulfilled, in ways that they would not have thought. Poor old Jonah could never have imagined so let's, let's jump into a little bit. We'll, we'll talk through some of these points on our way to what I think is the key point in verse 25. First of all, verses 1 to 6. Through history, God is fulfilling his promise. He has been. God has not abandoned his promises. Verse 1 of Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Not at all. For I myself am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his, his people that Paul says, I'm one of them. And I am a believer in Jesus. I have been redeemed by Messiah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life too. God, it's over. There is no one else in Israel who believes you or follows you. There is no one else worshiping you. It's just me, and they want to finish me off too, God. You might as well take me now. That's Elijah. And what is God's answer to him? But what is God's reply? I have kept for myself 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you don't know it. But there are 7,000 other men, he says, and those men represent households and families. There are 7,000 other households that have not bowed the knee to Baal who still believe me and follow me. And they're hiding. But I know them. So too, Paul says in verse 5, at the present time, the same thing. There is a remnant there is a remnant out of God's grace. There is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it's grace, it is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That reference to works, that, that looks back to chapter 10, where the problem was Israel sought a righteousness from God that they would earn by works, being good enough. And there is no such standing before God. We could never measure up. And yet, God has given us a rightness with him that is in Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who took our guilt, who gave us his right standing so that we are in right relationship with God again. All right, so God has done more than they expected in the first century. Paul says, hello, I am here. God is saving Israelites too. He reminds this Gentile Roman church of that. He says, Elijah thought the same thing, and yet God was doing far more than Elijah expected, saving a remnant out of Israel. And so God continues, but it's a remnant, not yet the whole. Look at verse 7. What's, what's happening then? Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking because they sought it by works instead of believing God's grace. But the chosen or the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. And he gives a couple of Old Testament quotations from Isaiah 29 and from Psalm 69 that describe what is this. It was predicted that most of Israel would not believe. They would be hardened in unbelief. Now, this section causes us to answer a couple of questions that, that 
are floating around in, in, in Romans 9 to 11. Questions that distract us and can actually cause us to miss the point. So I want to spend a little time on them, although not much. First of all, let's talk about free will and election. How about that? We'll do that in just a little time, not much, right? Well, let's talk about this notion of free will to begin with. Is, apart from God, an unsaved person, do they have free will? You would say yes. I would say no. Martin Luther addressed this at the Reformation when people started to think about the gospel again. He said, no, no, human, humanity apart from God, humanity lost, does not have free will. They are in bondage to sin and cannot free themselves. They are not free. They are just lost and separated from God. And so, and so Luther writes the book, Bondage of the Will. Now, so we're, we're better off, instead of talking about humanity's free will, we're better off talking about humanity's responsibility of choice. We are responsibility for our choice. We are responsibility for our trust, our confidence, our belief. We are responsible for our actions. God is responsible. God chooses to act and do. And we are responsible for what we choose to act and do. Okay, let's talk about it on, the, on those terms. Now, concerning salvation, we know that there is an elect, there is a remnant, that God is choosing, that God chooses to redeem. And at certain times and in certain ways, God chooses to act for the good of humanity and a particular people in the midst of that moment. God chooses to do that for them, and yet there are others. The other side of the coin, God is choosing. The other side of the coin is that we are responsible for our response. We are responsible to believe. The Bible is clear. God is not willing that any should perish. That whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. But which of it is true, that God is choosing or that humans are to believe and whoever believes will be saved? Which of those is true? The answer is yes. Those are what one, one, one good teacher has called parallel truths. That God, that there, there are those that are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that God is actively intervening and working so that people will be saved. God has chosen a remnant here. And yet, the same thing is true that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That God so loved the world that whoever, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, believes in the son, will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes it is also a parallel truth. The problem comes when we take those parallel truths that do not intersect because they are parallel lines, we take those lines of truth and we look for how do they come together. Where do they join? Where do they intersect? Parallel lines do not intersect. Parallel truths don't necessarily intersect in our thinking unless you bend one of them. Unless you bend or distort one of them in order to get it to intersect with the other truth. And typically what happens in theological circles is we bend one of those truths or the other one to make them come together. What if some of God's ways are beyond our comprehension? Did God not say, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways? I, I shouldn't expect to understand all of God's ways any more than I would expect my cat to fully comprehend all the things that I think and do. And all of how my purposes are going to work out. She focuses on, if they're going upstairs, they're probably going to put food in my food dish. That's really her thought process. They're heading for the stairs, and zoom, she goes to the food dish. Every time. 
There's a whole lot of other reasons to go upstairs, and the cat knows nothing about them. Like, my ways are above the cat's ways, I, I would hope. How much more are God's ways above our ways? Now, the cat's not a great example because I do not comprehend the cat either. However, God does know our ways. God knows us fully. So then, we would expect that there are things about God, God's ways and working and these parallel lines of truth that do not intersect within our framework of understanding. That's okay. Somebody explained it to me this way. Imagine before the pearly gates into the presence of God and into his kingdom and eternity with him. Imagine in this gateway there is an arch. And on the arch it is emblazoned with these beautiful golden letters. And those letters say, inviting anyone to enter, they say, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. There's the invitation. And the invitation is to whoever. So what do you do? I don't know about you. I'm going through the arch. When I move through that arch, I look back over my shoulder, and, and on the inside as well, there's lettering. There's a, there's a statement. There's a declaration there. You know what it says? Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't understand how those two get to come together, but I know they are both true, and that's where I'm going to rest on. God has chosen me. If you're a believer in him, he has chosen you. You are his because he has chosen you. And yet, well, how do I get to be one of God's chosen? Whoever, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know if I can believe. I don't know if I'm one of his chosen. How can I know if I'm one of his chosen? Believe. Well, I don't know if I want to believe. Well, then maybe you're not one of his chosen. I don't know how all that goes together, but they are parallel truths. And I can trust God there. Another thing that's worth talking about here is this hardening of Pharaoh. He says that there is a, in, in verse 7, that the elect, the chosen obtained it, but the rest were hardened. What about this whole hardening thing? If some people are hardening, does that mean they can't believe? Well, the quotes that explain the statement as it is written, the quotes describe time in Israel's history under Isaiah and under David when they had determined we're not following God. We are going our way. We're going to do what we say instead of what God has said. They had determined their course in unbelief. It goes back to the example of Pharaoh in Romans chapter 9. That in Romans chapter 9, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Why? Because Pharaoh determines he is not going to listen to God. Who is the Lord, he says, that I should listen to him? And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he hardened his heart. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hardened his heart. And several episodes into the dialogue that goes on over weeks, multiple plagues and demonstrations of God's power where Pharaoh hardened his heart, and would not bow and yield to God's demand. Then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So God simply stiffened him in his own resolve. Maybe it compares something like in Romans chapter 1. 
where it says God gave them over. When did God gave them over? After they already knew what could be known about God. They knew, they were aware of the existence of God and of his attributes. And yet they took that which could be known about God and they suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. They held it down. They pushed it down. They closed their eyes. They stuffed their ears. They walked away. And at some point along the way, it says God gave them over to their obstinate unbelief. Now for you this morning, maybe you wandered into church this morning and you say, what is this that I'm hearing? I don't know. Does that mean that God has given me over? Does that mean that God has hardened my heart and I could not believe? If you're troubled by that this morning, if that was a concern to you, if someone you were talking to, if that was a concern to them, could it be that my heart would be too hardened? If that's their concern, then the answer is no. How many times will they have? How much longer will they have? I do not know. Pharaoh didn't know when the, when the, when the shift would swing from he hardened his heart to God hardened his heart. And then they seemed to interplay from there. But Pharaoh, God didn't put on Pharaoh anything that Pharaoh did not choose for himself is the point. But the point in all that is God is still choosing and God is still working and God is still saving a remnant and God is going to do even more than that. And that's what I want to press on to before I, I, I use up all of our time together. Israel today is, is not believing in Jesus as Messiah by and large. There have been all through history those out of Israel who have believed, part of that remnant. But by and large, whether it's in Jerusalem or Brooklyn, Israelites are not believing in their Messiah. And what that has done is because the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and that's what we've seen in the book of Romans, that has led to God extending the invitation to you and I. And he's doing that to actually provoke Israel to jealousy, not just to say, see what you missed, ha <laughs> ha, sorry for you, too bad for you, I'm going with this bunch. No, God's intention is to use you to stir up others to faith. For the joy and the mercy and the love which they see in your life and that they long for. Could it be real? Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I don't know what it is, but I wish I had what you have. I wish I knew the one you seem to know. I wish I could believe like you believe. Because it's, it's seeing the work of God in the life of another is attractional. And that's what God is doing, not only on an individual scale but with you and your friend, but nationally with his people as well. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet... Whoops, wrong chapter. Let's go with chapter 11 and verse 11. So I ask then... Did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the nations so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, the nations, how much more will their full inclusion be? What is, what is he talking about here? Have they stumbled that they should fall? The word is a temporary word and a permanent word. Have they tripped momentarily? having stumbled over the stumbling stone, which is Jesus dying for them, not Jesus causing the death of the Roman enemies, but that they need a Savior, and that's what they stumbled over. No, we can follow the law. We can be good enough. And, and Jesus says, no, you are not good enough. You need me to die for you. 
And they stumbled over that stumbling stone that God's salvation was God doing for them by grace, something they could not earn for themselves. But did they stumble over that stumbling stone, which is a temporary tripping, in order that they should fall to ruin? The idea is the fall is to utterly perish, to be destroyed. Not to rise again. It's like you're, you're walking along and you stumble and fall off a cliff. Nope. It's over for him. That's not what is being described here. They, he says, no, they have not stumbled unto utter ruin. But what is God doing? God is, God is using the salvation of others, extended salvation to us, that he might pro- provoke them back to faith as well. And what is their full inclusion going to mean? There is a full inclusion coming. Hold on to that. Verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what God is doing, calling the nations to faith in Jesus, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, then what will their acceptance mean? They're rejecting the gospel for now, but what will happen when they receive it? Could it be that there's a day coming that Israel as a whole... A nation is going to together come to faith in Christ all at once. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? We're going to sew this together in verse 25 in just a moment, but let's just pause and think about that. There's a, there's a rejection of the gospel for our riches, and that, but that anticipates a coming full inclusion of a national Israel. That there's a temporary rejection... But that temporary rejection is going to be followed by an acceptance that is coming that will be life from the dead. It will be a resurrection day. When Jesus comes in his second coming, the graves will be opened, the dead will rise, there will be a resurrection that Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 12 looked forward to. That when Ezekiel saw that valley of dry bones and resurrected from the dead and an army standing alive to serve the Lord in Ezekiel 37, it's going to be fulfilled. Revelation chapter 20 talks about this. At the, the, the Lord's coming, he defeats the Antichrist and his, and his rebellion and then the the dead are raised and live with him in his kingdom. What will it be when Israel believes? It will be life from the dead. There is a day coming. Could God really do that? There is a day coming. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out my spirit upon them, Israel, and they will look upon him whom they pierced. And they will mourn for him, get this, as one mourns for an only son. God's Son, His only Son that He gave so that whoever believes in Him. And a nation, Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66 says, a nation will be born in a day. A whole people will be brought forth at once. This is what it's going to look like. I got a picture of this. From the Mount of Olives, looking at Jerusalem, this is Jesus' perspective. Well, okay, not quite. That was Bob's perspective on a trip to Israel. But Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives. And, and, and in, in, in the book of Zechariah, it describes how his foot's going to touch down. He's going he's to return to the Mount of Olives so that what the angel said, as you see him, he will surely come from heaven just as you've seen him go into heaven from the same place on the Mount of Olives. And if you stand there on the Mount of Olives and look to Jerusalem, you look to the Temple Mount, right now it's, it's uh, centered on the Mount is the Dome of the Rock Mosque. As you look, you see in the foreground all of these tombs, 
It's a cemetery. The Mount of Olives, this wonderful, significant place has become a cemetery. Why is that? There's a very good reason. We are, from the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we are in this time where the gospel has gone to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We are in this age of the reconciliation of the world where God is inviting the nations to come and share in Messiah's salvation. And there's going to become a time, though, at the end of this age, when, it says in verse 25, when the fullness of the nations has come in, when God completes his saving work in this age among all the nations, he's going to pour out his spirit upon Israel. And the nation is going to be born in a day. They are going to together, as a people, look on him whom they pierced, and they are going to mourn. And, and Messiah is going to return. Peter in Acts chapter 3 invites them, urges them even on that day that that day would be the day that Israel as a whole would receive their Messiah. Because he said, whom heaven must receive until, until the time of the restoration of all things. And when Israel believes, Messiah returns and restores his kingdom. There is a resurrection from the dead, Old Testament believers as well, and we enter the kingdom of God on earth. Where the kingdoms of this world, in the words of, of the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. And then all of those things, all of those pieces, all of those things that you would have expected that God would do according to his purposes and his character, you're going to see it fulfilled day by day. And you and I will be a part of that. So then we come to... Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own understanding and think God rejected, God cast off those folk and he chose us instead. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, a partial hardening in that many are not believing. There is a remnant who are believing, but most are not. Most are hardened still until the fullness of the nations has come in. And when God has completed the saving work among the nations he's chosen to do, and, and so, in this way, then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will rush out of Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The ungodliness of Jacob, rebellious Israel, will be put, put aside. It will be put away forever. And this will be my covenant with them, my new covenant with them, my pouring out of the Spirit, new covenant with them, when I take away their sins. What you and I share in the already has not yet been fully realized. It will be. It is coming. God has given us already the first fruits, the first taste of this new covenant, but it is going to be fully experienced by his people just as he promised. A new covenant I make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's an Israel thing. And it's not just that God's fussy about those people in particular. What about us? Hey, he put us first, as it sort of turns out. And yet he has never forgot his promises to them. And that's an Israel thing, and you're not Jewish. Why would you care? I'll tell you this. Knowing that God will not let his promise to Israel lapse from so far back, and so much has happened since then, 
And yet God will not let that promise lapse. He will see it through to completion. You can know with certainty that every promise he's made to you concerning your standing, your acceptance, your belonging to him as his own is true and sure in Christ Jesus. What God has said, he will do. In fact, God will do more than you or I would expect. That coming of the Lord, as described in Romans 11, in verse 26, he's quoting Isaiah 59 there. Let's just take a minute and turn back to Isaiah 59. We won't, I'd encourage you to wander through the chapter and kind of just, just read through and pick out what, you, what seems to make sense to you now as we've talked about it some. But let's, let's start in verse 14 because verse 14 kind of sounds like today. Verse 14 of Isaiah 59, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter there. Sound familiar? The, the truth even upon which the, 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 um, the biblical and Judeo-Christian foundation that even our culture, Western society from the Reformation forward, was founded on, and in many ways depends on for its, its core assumptions, has been brushed aside. It's been pushed to the margins. And that leaves chaos. Truth is lacking, verse 15, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. If you don't go along, then you're going to be the one to pay. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. Hey, people are concerned about justice today. You say, hey, you know, there's a verse in Isaiah. We, we just, the pastor stumbled across in church there, and it was that the Lord is concerned that there is no justice And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought salvation for him. God rolls up his sleeve and God himself can rightly say, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And God himself wades in. All right, that's what he's done. God himself has waded into our human history, into our mess, and he's accomplished salvation for us, which we could not do. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on a helmet of salvation. And down in verse 19, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun in the east, for he will come like a rushing stream. This is like in one of those dry riverbeds that you see commonly in Israel. And it's, it's just an empty, it's called a wadi. It's an empty canyon. There's no water in it. There's not a drop to drink. But when there's a rainstorm up in the hills, you wait. And after a certain period of time, the water's going to come from this trickle and that stream and so on. And through that canyon, through that wadi, there is going to be a rushing torrent that will move along huge boulders in its path. Unstoppable. And in that way, like a rushing stream, which the wind or spirit of the Lord drives, a Redeemer will rush forth from Zion. To those in Jacob who have turned from transgression, declares the Lord. And this is my covenant with them. That's what Paul is quoting. And why is he evoking that imagery? Why is he bringing that up to mind? Because what comes next in chapter 60 is what we read at the start of the service. It's what Palm Sunday ought to be. 
is supposed to be and will ultimately be. Arise and shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen. That will occur literally and fully at the end of this age, at the end of the tribulation, when Israel calls upon him and their Lord from heaven answers them. The nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. But we today nibble around the edges of that already. That his light has risen upon us, that we are his lights in the midst of darkness. And so we are those who can know that even in the midst of times when our lives, situations and circumstances, they look more like Palm Sunday than they do the second coming, but our God is going to keep his word. Our God is going to do what he said. And from Palm Sunday to the crucifixion to the resurrection, he did more than they actually expected. And God continues to exceed expectations. All right? I don't know about your retirement plan or if that's a phrase that's ever been used in your work assessment, but God always continues to greatly exceed our expectations. Verse 29 wraps it up. The gifts and the callings of God, they are irrevocable. They are irrevocable for Israel. They are irrevocable for you. The calling that God has put on your life, the standing that he has given you in Jesus Christ, the fact that he has made you his own ambassadors in this world for Christ, that is irrevocable. That does not change. God has called you to be his own And as he said in chapter 8, nothing can separate you and I from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say at the end of that in the book of Romans? Praise be to God. Let's worship. Let's sing of his goodness. Let's sing of his grace. Let's sing of our confident hope in his future. And that will fuel us in the midst of this present day. Father... We do, Lord, declare again in prayer our confidence in you. Lord, there are times when our faith is unsure. There are, times, there are times, Father, when we are uncertain. Lord, in those times, we declare that we believe. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Father, we pray that you would, in fact, remind us of what you have done already that assures us that you will do all that you have promised. You will do more than we expected. And Father, we can trust you in the midst of it. Lord, help us to trust you in this next week. Help us to trust you that you have called us as your own, you have made us your ambassadors, and there are people around us that need to see the light of God in the face of Christ in me. Lord, give us the courage then to do that because we trust you to do more than we expect. Lord, help us to trust you to do more than we would ask or think or even imagine. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.